Hello, and welcome back to Mental Filter. So this is a first for us. We've had many, many episodes that were just audio, and now we're going to experiment with having our episodes video as well. And bear with us. Hopefully it will work out. My name is Shmuel Fischler. I am a clinical social worker. I own and run a practice a bit north of Baltimore called CBT Baltimore, and I am privileged to facilitate this podcast I've had and have wonderful co-hosts on many different interesting topics, interesting people, and really just trying to create meaningful, relatable content for anyone who's watching and listening. So today's topic is what you might think not relatable to everyone, but it actually is. It's all about grief and loss. So I have a colleague and friend who you'll meet in just a moment. It's about grief and loss. And, you know, sometimes we think loss is like these big things. You know, I lost my pet. I lost a loved one. I lost my job. And those certainly are losses. But in actuality, we all experience different types of losses every day, practically, sometimes many times a day. And what happens when we don't allow ourselves to feel or acknowledge that, hey, that stinks. You know, that was a loss. I wish it didn't happen. I was hoping it was going to go a different way. And you'll see that that once you hear about that, it is very relatable and it is very common. And how do we actually deal with it? Because if we don't deal with it, how it builds up and has a greater impact. So I hope you enjoy. This is Mental Filter. All right, welcome back everybody to Mental Filter. I'm really looking forward to this episode of a good friend, good colleague who is willingly decided to co-host with me on a topic that I think is extremely relevant to everybody. Uh, as always, if you enjoy this, if you get anything out of this, please do take a minute to rate it, to uh, review it, share it, all your friends and family, dogs, neighbors, everybody, to help us get some more exposure. Um, and without further ado, Dr. Josh, please let everyone know who you are. Hello, I am Josh Goncher. I go by Yoshua Goncher in Israel, where I am currently located in Israel, in F city of Efrat, in the place called the Gush, where I practice as a psychotherapist and anxiety specialist. I see Israelis, I see Americans here. I do only practice in English, but I see a lot of different a variety of people in Israel. And I also see the majority of my patients online primarily work in nursing homes. I work at CBT Baltimore and several other locations, and I'm completely virtual. I don't fly back and forth to see patients, but uh, hey, who knows? Right. And, and you know, Josh has a lot to share. And for those who are listening, whether you're listening and watching through video, this is actually the first time we've had many, many episodes, but this is the first time we're experimenting and playing around with doing this on a video platform as well. So bear with us and Hopefully it'll be even more uh, engaging. So as you heard in the introduction, the topic of the day is loss. And, you know, I was thinking this morning, actually on the way in, thinking about losses and thinking as a, as a business owner myself, one of the really uh, staples of your bookkeeping and accounting is profit and loss statements. And I was thinking, you know what, you know, in life too, there's constant profits and losses. There's gains and, and losses throughout the day. The question is, do they all need to be addressed? How significant are they? So let's just start from really just this general standpoint, because we're going to get into the weeds of it. You know, people talk about grief and loss, but how would you define what's the parameters of what you consider a loss? It's a good question. Generally, obviously, we don't know what it means to lose something whether I can't find my keys or I actually suffer from the death of a loved one. All of those can be losses. Yeah. If you're stuck in traffic and you're going to miss your meeting, that's a loss. If someone embarrasses you, that's a loss. If you got robbed, all the things, all the times when you actually lose something, emotionally, physically, spiritually, those are all losses. You can apply the same skills in mourning small losses that we will eventually to large losses. But 
for the purposes of this podcast and this video podcast, we will keep to the parameters just to talk about mostly physical losses. And then we'll try to get to the emotional losses. Right. So according so so long so with that sort of definition, then you know, technically we're in a constant barrage of losses all day. Correct. Every day. Correct. So it's therefore super important and integral to our mental and physical health that we learn how to mourn these losses sufficiently. Because if we don't, then they build up. And as Freud famously said, if we don't process an emotion effectively, then it's going to come out in an ugly manner. So if we don't mourn these losses, then, you know, it's just going to build up and build up and build up. So we might be jumping the gun a second here. Does that mean that every single loss, need? if I don't process every single loss, then it's going to come back to bite me? So if I, you know, spilled my coffee on the way out of my house and, you know, I didn't, if I don't process that, then it's going to come back to bite me? I don't know if it'll come back and bite you, but it's like a threshold. You know, they say the straw that breaks the camel's back is just a straw. However, if there were a thousand straws, then this becomes the last straw, which actually breaks the camel's back. So if you have had a beautiful night's sleep and you got your exercise yesterday and you're eating healthy and your kids didn't yell at you and you and your wife are getting along, then great. That cup of coffee will be something relatively small in the grand scheme of things. However, if none of those things is actually going your way, uh, you were late, your kids yelled at you, everything goes wrong, that little cup of coffee is something that's just going to be the icing on the cake. So yes and no. So there's your answer. So death by a thousand losses. There you go. Yeah. And sometimes by one. But really, right. I hope to give you the skills in this situation to mourn the small losses so they don't grow into big losses. And so your threshold doesn't pile up. Right. Okay. So now that we've established like loss could really vary tremendously and it can be almost anything. And I'm sure it varies from person to person also in the experience. What's the internal experience when I lose something? Again, whether it's losing a relationship, losing a quarter, mm -hmm. <laughs> losing a... <laughs> losing a working vehicle for the day because I have a flat tire. W what's happening inside? We have these expectations that we want to have filled or met. And when they're not going the way we intended or thought, we feel sad about them. And as we know, anybody in the world, no one likes to feel sad. You really don't. We have this expectation that our car was going to be just fine. It's going to get us from point A to point B, that I was going to reach into my pocket and be able to buy that gumball with a quarter, or that I was going to stay married or in this relationship forever. Didn't go as planned, and it sucks, and I'm sad. So we all feel sad when we lose something. That's what happens. We lose a loved one, we feel sad. And also, if we lose a job, we feel sad. So that's the initial reaction to a loss right obviously if you've seen someone who lost a job and got angry we know people like that well that's either because we haven't mourned the losses haven't processed these losses sufficiently or we just can't be sad we immediately turn to anger more about that in a few right right so when we're not allowing ourselves to feel those feelings that's when it starts to pile up so Correct. So, well, if I may, when yeah. we're not specifically intentionally feeling the sad feelings, that's when it piles up and builds up. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So now, are you saying that in theory, because you talked about expectations and so, so many of us sometimes build up these unrealistic you know, expectations for being human or living, yeah, right. living, living in our society. So does that mean that if I set such low expectations, I won't feel any loss? Some people like, you know, they go into situations expecting the worst and hoping for the best or like, you know, if I set the bar right. super low that I'm never going to be disappointed, like, would you recommend that? <laughs> I Probably not. No. If that's what a person wants, comes into my office and says, look, I'd like to set the bar super low. I think, great, let's do it. <laughs> uh, and that's, again, 
I like to say my patient comes in and I have to know before whom I sit. And whatever my patient wants, if that's what he or she wants, great, let's do it. However, that also takes into consideration a little low self-esteem. And that's a, a time for another podcast. But if we do set our bar so low, that already is a loss as well. If that I don't think I'm ever going to have my expectations fulfilled or met, then that's sad. And that's a loss in and of itself. And that we can work on. So that really stinks. You think you're never going to reach happiness, never going to reach your goals. And we process that loss. Right. Okay. So I try to avoid using the word normal too often, but is there somewhat of an objective normative amount of loss? Because some, you know, objectively, some people live in conditions like, you know, we're spoiled, most of us. I can say that I'm spoiled, you know. I have so many wonderful things that I take for granted. And some people live in situations where there's this chronic, uh, terrible, Poverty. you know, Waller. conditions. Yeah. So, you know, the term like first world problems. Is there a normal amount of loss where it's not like, yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know if I'm making my question super clear. No, but... it's a great question. So again, I have to take each patient as he or she comes, each individual, not just patient, because this is something that people who don't seek therapy could also be doing, in fact, should be doing. In the Jewish tradition, then we have the sitting shiva and the 30 days of mourning that's a little lighter, and then the 11 months of mourning as well, and it continues to get more lenient in its restrictions. And that is a wonderful way to mourn the death of a loved one. And that's kind of standard. So I often prescribe a sort of sitting shiva, even if the person is not Jewish. It's long time. It might take a long time to mourn the loss of a loved one. There's the Kubler-Ross stages of grief that we know are not necessarily linear. Lucky if they are, but it sometimes goes in roller coasters up and down. So each person mourns differently, but it is my intent and hope with practice that the time spent, as long as it's intentional, again, as long as there is a reason for those tears, and I'm sitting in the sadness for a reason, then it gets progressively easier and easier, and the losses are not wallowing in pity. So, for example, you spill your coffee, you're not going to ruin your whole day if you practice this. And maybe when you first try it out, oh gosh all these terrible things happened to me and you feel like you're never going to get better but really it's kind of counterintuitive being sad on purpose gets you out of the sadness so the answer i guess is no there is no real normal correct <laughs> right each individual case as it goes right so for one person you know, um, spilling their coffee is like a big deal. And for one person, it's not. Correct. And just like PTSD, when you and I are in a car crash, God forbid, and you get out, brush yourself off, and you can drive the next day. I might be shaken to my core. Why is that? Talk about resilience here, we could. We talk about what's what you do with the event. So if I let this sadness rule over me more so than you do, then your morning would be a lot quicker than mine. Right. So to clarify for people watching or listening, you know, it, and I, I'll be very transparent as a clinician, you know, we have to sort of check our expectations or how we handle things sort of at the door, mm -hmm. which can be hard sometimes. So it means if someone comes into the office and like every little thing is like, ah, woe is me. Um, and this is like, you know, some people might call them dramatic or, you know, this is like, this is such a big deal. Oh my gosh. I they they didn't have the, the, the soy latte specialized milk from, you know, imported from how am I going to make it through the day? You know, yeah. we, sort of, I, we have to sort of like straddle the line of, let me find my words here. So we have to like straddle the line of not, you know, dismissing it, but mm -hmm. also saying, yeah, everything's a big deal and you should make everything a big deal. And if there's a lot of costs in their life of making everything a big deal, like, does that make sense? I so hear. So there are a couple of things you said, everything in their life is a big deal and we should make it a big deal. 
Well, I think we can separate those two things. If everything in this person's life is a big deal, then I'll have them get clarity. You know, I want to make sure before we go anywhere, I want to make sure what my patient wants from me. If we're talking in general in the community, quote, I can do quotes, air quotes, it's a video. Mm-hmm. In the community, then a person just, you know, mourns a loss. And if everything is terrible, then it takes a lot of mourning and it takes more practice because it's not something that people are generally used to. Do. You try to avoid it all the time. But in a case where this person comes into my office and says, look, I don't know how to function. They didn't have my soy milk and they had to have not ethically sourced beans. And I'm all the listeners and watchers are probably rolling their eyes. And that's where we have to check that, check ourselves at the door, like we said. But if a person really believes that he cannot or she cannot go on unless he or she has that special coffee, then that is a loss that we can tend to mourn. I may throw in some irreverence and a little bit of kind sarcasm and ask, really, really your day is ruined by that? And I might have them do some comparisons. If you lost your grandfather, God forbid, or if you lost your job, would that be on the same level? Maybe not. Maybe if it's the same level, then great. Then they need a little bit more practice than they've been getting. So if they equate the loss of a loved one to death, to the loss of a non-dairy whip on their latte, then yeah, then we have to do some work. But really, I just want to get clarity from them. And clarity is the enemy of anxiety. And anxiety happens when they think that they're never going to survive if these losses come. Right. And you mentioned expectations. Do you find that, you know, over time, people's expectations of how things should pan out for them or how much I shouldn't have to feel uh, negative emotion, sadness, or things should go my way. Do you feel like that's changed over time at all? You mean like- Or our uh, tolerance like, or our intolerance. The zeitgeist, for example, what, what's they? happening. Yeah. So like uh, I've noticed in my older patients, let's say the boomers, they definitely can tolerate more loss than the Gen Z can. Judging it just happens to be that, uh, and this is a whole other can of worms, but uh, we, the older generation, has been trained to deal with more discomfort. They can handle more adversity than I think some of the Gen Z can. Definitely, you're going to get some strongly worded, written, strongly written emails, I'm sure. But I believe that people didn't have anything to turn to other than their processing of these emotions. Whereas the current generation, obviously I'm going to say it, the phones, you can turn to the phone immediately when you're feeling any kind of discomfort. So I won't have to process anything. I won't have to mourn a loss. Now, for good or for ill, wait just a few more months, a few more weeks. They spill into our practice. Practice, You know, they, they just don't know how to handle themselves. When any adversity comes their way, which it inevitably does, they just do not have the psychic infrastructure to handle. So in essence, because this is one of the questions I was going to bring up, in essence, when someone, whether consciously or unconsciously, makes the choice to kick the can down the road, to creatively find a way to sidestep an emotion, an emotional mm-hmm. experience, let's just say sadness or loss, like you, like we're talking about, that will reinforce the low tolerance for said emotion and and inevitably because that is life we're going to face countless more losses and which create these emotions and the more and more we try to dance around it and push it off and dance around it and push it off our tolerance for such an emotion is only going to get lower and our response or reaction to another situation, which brings up that emotion, is only going to get stronger. Is that fair to say? That sounds accurate. It's like glitter. You know, you can't ever get rid of it. It just always turns up in your elbow and under your fingernails. Sometimes it's crazy. Yeah, a good one. As much as you try to get rid of it, glitter is nice at least. Sadness doesn't feel good. That's like why the, we try to kick like it down the, the road. Mark, uh, the Mark Rober glitter bombs. I don't know if you've seen those. Uh, I love that guy. <laughs> He's oh. great. He's great. Mark Rober, if you're listening, you'll, we got you a shout out here. <laughs> yes, come on to the next podcast. <laughs> okay, so now speak a little bit, if you can, like what kind of influences do people have 
that contribute to what makes it easier or harder for them to process loss? You know, why does this person seem to have more resilience and other person doesn't? So it could be, I don't know, if it, is it life experiences? Is it genetics? Is it modeling from their parents? Is it all of the above? It could be very well all of the above. I, I believe there's a lot, again, like I said earlier, self-esteem is tied into it, where the way I define self-esteem is that you have self-love and self-efficacy. And if I don't have self-love, then I don't believe that my emotions are worthwhile to pay attention to, that they're worthwhile to pay, to process and mourn. And so if I don't have sufficient self-esteem, I'm going to just do everything I can to avoid this emotion. So before Why you add I more, do- before you add more, let's actually use an example for that so we can like walk it through. So say I applied for a job and I didn't get it. Okay. And is no, the job better, really better, wanted? better, better. Say oh. I have, say I have a child who is not turning out like the way I had pictured. Okay. Uh-huh. So apply that now to the first, you're just going through a couple influences. So if, say right. if I have the self-esteem, the self-love, how does that apply to that? Scenario? If I didn't love myself enough, that means that everything I need to do needs to be perfect. And since it's not perfect, I get angry. And if my kid doesn't turn out the way I want him or her to, then it's obviously my fault. And instead of my getting sad about it, I get angry about it. I take it out on the kid. I don't take it out on myself. I feel guilty, perhaps. I might start drinking. I might start using. Uh, I might just have a terrible relationship with this kid. All because I don't love myself enough to pay attention to the sadness. Because if I just paid attention to the sadness, it would go away. I like to say sadness is a demon that thrives without eye contact. If I don't look at it, it's still there. And if I don't mourn this loss because I don't think I can or I don't think I should, then it's just going to come back, like you said earlier, the proverbial bite me in the rear. Got it. If I love myself enough and if I felt capable enough and I would look it in the eye. Yeah, I would look at this sadness and say, look, I know I can handle this. It's not going to kill me. It's terribly sad. But really, if your kid doesn't become the soccer player that you were in high school, is that going to be the worst thing for you? And if you really think it is, then really you've got to work on some of this processing of this loss. And it's terrible. Right. Okay, so self-love was one. What was uh, yeah. What was another one? Again, self-love and self-efficacy, I think, like I just spoke about, it, it would probably be the combination of the two, the self-love and the self-efficacy, that I that I made a mistake, okay, I'm good enough, I'm strong enough, doggone it, people like me, and I will, I can move on. Self-efficacy means, like, if this happens again, I'll be okay. It's going to be sad and hard, but I'll be okay. So those two, that's what makes it easier to deal with these losses, but also practice, you know, how do you get to Carnegie hall? It's the same way you mourn losses, practice, practice, practice. If if people are listening and watching and they've never done this in their lives before, they might scoff at it. They might say, well, that seems impossible. Or I've tried that and it's not working. Well, I think it's just like any technique. I've tried to do pull-ups or I can't tell you how many times from all, and I still can't do a pull-up, but I really need to dedicate time for this. I need to do what it takes to do that pull-up. Same thing with a loss. And I am telling you nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, if you mourn this loss, the depression goes away. The anger goes away. Right. The sadness I, goes away. You know what it reminds me of is, is that my father has an amazing sense of direction. He's a traveling salesman and he would, when I was younger, he would like, you know, try to tell you, so you just go Northwest for, you know, for a couple of miles and then you hang a left and you, and like, I lost you at Northwest, you know, like I, <laughs> I, I, I did not, I did not get that. So, and I learned that very quickly, you know, when I got my own car and I was older, when I got older and when I was dating, I used to literally, when I used to, you know, when the date started, I learned to be like, just very upfront. Listen, chances are is that we might get lost here. It's going to be fine, but like, we're probably going to get lost. <laughs> I mean, this is also when like GPS was, you know, a separate entity, you know, yeah, the, the Garmin direction or, or printing out map quests, you know, like I'm dating myself, obviously, 
but it's sort of like reminds me of that like perhaps in the beginning it was like no it should come easily to me i should be able to and then i was just like okay it is i'm gonna do whatever is in my control to try to create directions and it could be that i'm gonna get lost and figure it out i'm gonna i'm gonna be yeah. okay so i don't know if that's along the lines of yeah. what you're saying well, like I feel like I accepted that I have other strengths and not that I'm not going to try, but it is. Exactly. And that's also a loss. CBT therapists love to talk about the shoulds. Like, you know, I should already know how to figure out North by Northwest or whatever that means, but I don't. And that stinks. I really wanted to by this time. I'm, I'm 45 and I really should know how to read a compass and that's really sad. I expected something to happen this way and it didn't go the way I planned. And that in itself is a loss. So, but again, it just takes practice. There's that famous 10,000 hours. And I don't believe that morning loss is sufficiently or effectively takes the 10,000. But a lot of us out here are, I want to be the expert already. I want to play like Steph Curry. That guy literally logged 1,000 free throws every single day of his life. So that's how he's who he is. It takes a lot of effort, and I believe it's worth it. And after you try it even a few times, you'll see results. It's not like you'll be able to dunk like that guy. I'm smiling. But, I'm smiling because the movie that comes to mind is White Men Can't Jump. <laughs> He's. It's like literally in the titles, like accepting that, dude, you, you can't. You can't John dunk. Harrison did not accept that. Right. Not accept that in the movie. Now, clinically speaking, I can't really speak to a Hollywood movie title, but um, <laughs> there's a lot to acceptance. You know, I want to be a ballerina, but I only have one leg. I want to be able to, you know, uh, lift 700 pounds bent pressing, but I only weigh 100 pounds. So there's a lot of acceptance. There's acceptance, but there's mourning of that. So, you know, so I'm so glad you brought that up because that actually I didn't even have this in my preparation, but you bring up really a good point, which raises a question. We sort of in much of our society, where's the line between, you know, we get this message like if you just continue working and working and working and working and working and working, you can overcome this. You can have that one leg and you can be and, you know, and some of these people do. You yes. know, they, wow, look at that. They have this and that they were able to do that. They're playing the guitar with their toes and can, they don't have any hands. And it's sort of like this one on one hand, this message is drilled in. Like if you just like don't let anyone tell you that you can't do something. Da, 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 da. And then but, you know, for every person who can play the guitar with their toes. You know how many can't or don't right. and they're feeling like, oh, well, I should be able to because this is what everyone's saying. I should so like where's the line between acceptance but also not giving up on like persevering and you know breaking through well that's again with self-esteem if you love yourself and you think you can handle anything then even if you can't handle something you'll be able to be you know what it's really sad it's really a sad situation i wish i could do this but that doesn't mean you should give it the old college try you know, you do as much as you can and then you don't give up, but you choose to do something differently. There's a very big difference in just saying, screw it all. I'm going to throw in the towel and choosing to do something else. You know, I wish I could play eight hours a day like Andre Segovia on my guitar. I literally don't have the time to do that if I want to feed my kids. So I choose to work and get a paycheck. And then if I have a chance to play guitar for a half hour, I'll do that. But it's not giving up. It's not saying I should be able to do that. Because, again, what are the expectations? I teach my patients you can have, do, and be anything you want. You just have to be okay with the consequences. So I can drive 100 miles an hour down the beltway. I don't care. But I have to be okay with whatever consequences are. Right. I, I should be able to. Don't pull me over. Well, no, as long as you're okay. As long as you're not delusional, I think you can... Well, I feel like that's what I'm saying. I feel like sometimes that message of trying to encourage people goes a little sideways when they, when yeah. they sort of impart the message that don't let anyone tell you that you can't and you shouldn't ever let go of that like one, you know, goal and just and then some people wind up being stuck in really tough positions because 
you know, that's what I was told. I should never like get my foot off the gas pedal. Anyway, I know I'm going off on a, you well, know. I mean, if we go really quickly back to that, as long as you have clarity, like I was speaking about, as long as you know exactly what it is that you want, then, you know, we make the mistake with kids and with young people that we have this high level of expectation. Like, yeah, you better play the guitar with your feet, but we don't give them the high level of scaffolding or of support. You know, tell my kids, you better get all A's, but you better believe I'm going to be up till three in the morning helping them type their paper. Because if they want that A, they're going to put in, they're going to grind. I'm going to give them the high expectations, but I give them the high level of support. Sometimes we don't give those people, the young people, we don't give them that high level of support, even though we give them these high expectations. Right. Which speaks to, you know, what you're saying before, the self-efficacy and the self-love and the self-confidence. How much of an influence do you think it is early life experiences and parental modeling and responses? How much of influence do you think that has? I think there's a lot of influence. I'm glad you didn't say causal. Because I don't believe in a cause and effect. Just because something happened to you as a child does not mean you're guaranteed to be screwed up or positive as a result. It's what you choose to do later on. Yes, you might not have ever learned again. No one has learned to mourn losses like the way I prescribe. However, it doesn't mean you can't do it. It might be a little harder. It might be a little easier for some people. But it's definitely, if you never were taught that sadness is okay, and that is, in fact, important. And if you're of a religious upbringing that God actually gave you sadness for a reason, then you're going to just discount it. You'll be like, whatever, who needs you sadness? And do whatever you can to avoid it. There's a wonderful scene in every psychologist's favorite movie. Um, what is that movie? Inside uh, Out. Inside Out. I knew there was an in in there. Uh, Inside Out, when Joy and Sadness are trying to find Bing Bong, who is the imaginary friend of the girl whose head they're in. He's one who knows the train of thought back to headquarters, and he loses something. Joy tries to tickle him and distract him, and he's there sitting down with his head hunched, so sad, and sadness sounds that says, sounds like you've lost something you really care about. Yeah, I did. And Joy is like, what are you doing, sadness? Sadness actually helps the bing-bong, the imaginary friend, get through it, because the only way to get through it is to get through it. Don't ignore it. Don't avoid it. It's really important to have. So go ahead. Yay, Pixar, whoever did that, giving kids understanding that emotions are important. So if you've never heard that emotions are important and you shouldn't avoid them, then this is bad news. So you're still, everybody's resilient though. Right. I very much, uh, very much agree with that. And we all have beliefs about emotions. Like you said, if we were taught that sadness is a bad thing, uh, then we're going to do everything in our power to to stay away from it. A couple months ago, I, I did this uh, training with Dr. Michael Greenberg in California. And it's all about rumination. And one of the interesting things, uh, one of my interesting takeaways from it was that, you know, when you're working with anxiety, not only, you know, we try to get to, let's say, what a person's core fear is, let's say. I'm afraid of it. If I fail my quiz, then what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? Whatever you try to get that maybe down to a core fear. He said equally as important could be is this like a, a core emotional fears. Like I might mm-hmm. get stuck in, you know, fill in the blank emotion. I might get stuck in perpetual sadness or guilt or shame or loneliness or whatever it is. And because for whatever reason, I have a certain belief about said emotion, it's almost scarier to be stuck yeah. in, in an emotional state than whatever the actual uh, concrete consequence is. So I very much appreciate what you're saying. A lot of my patients think that if I start mourning all these losses, it's just going to be a perpetual loop of loss. And it's not actually. It's so counterintuitive. So you're telling me I should be sad? I should follow these thoughts to where I don't want them to go? Uh, yeah, you should. And you can do it with a trained professional watching you. I promise you. I'll help you out of it at the end, but you really need to go there. Like, ah, uh, are you sure? And it takes a little bit of convincing and it takes a little bit of practice. Again, practice. Right. It's really important. You know, you mentioned anger before. How else does loss come out that maybe doesn't look like, you know, typical? What other types of emotions come out where it's actually someone who's not really dealing with some sort of loss? Yeah. Uh, let me tell you a quick story. Uh, anybody listening or watching can think of a three or four year old that they know 
whether a niece or nephew or a child or whatever, kid they teach. Uh, imagine this little Susie comes up to you. She's three, and you give her a lollipop. She says, thank you, Shmuel, and she licks it, walks away, trips and falls. The lollipop is in the mud. Ideally, she should be crying because she's sad. She lost a lollipop. Now, how would anybody try to console her? Well, some people say, oh, don't cry. It's just a lollipop, invalidating the child's emotions, or say, hey, I got another lollipop. Here it is. And she takes it and says, I don't want this lollipop. I want that one. And now she's angry, and the two lollipops are in the mud. So she gets angry, and that's what little kids do. Also, Shmuel, that's what adults do. All the people ever, they hate feeling sad because it's terrible. They don't think they can handle it. So either they choose to move to anger, or they do it by accident, or it's just a knee-jerk reaction, or they're socialized to do it, whatever the case is. Whenever we lose, God forbid, a relative, grandpa died. I'm angry at the doctors. I'm angry at him. Why does he think he can leave me? I'm angry at myself. I was a bad grandson. I'm angry at God. We choose anger over sadness because we just don't think we can handle it. And then we can move, move, move towards, if we're talking about a timeline or sorts, a spectrum maybe, we can move to depression. For depression, you feel nothing. And you have chosen, as it were, to feel nothing, and we don't take responsibility for the loss, and we feel numb, and we know how, God forbid, that turns out. But in between the anger and the depression, there's all types of ways we handle the loss. There's self-injurious behavior, whether it's cutting, burning, etc. There's sexual behavioral acting out. There's self-medication. All of those are ways that we choose to avoid the sadness. I'll give you a Quick example, I was in a mountain manor treatment center, uh, a lot of drugs, heroin, a lot of alcohol. A young woman comes in my office, and she'd been clean for three days. The drugs had run their course, and I asked her what she want, and she just started bawling. She just could not stop crying. She finally had the numbness taken away. The comfort was gone, and now she was forced to look this sadness straight in the eye, and she just couldn't handle it. And it's telling why she would she would always, you know, drink. Go back to little Susie with the lollipop. The best way to help Susie get through the sadness is to help her get through the sadness. Now, if you look at the lollipop, it's not just the lollipop that she loves. It's that it's her favorite flavor. It's that Uncle Shmuel gave it to her, et cetera, et cetera. So she's crying and you say, Susie, I'm so sorry. It's your favorite lollipop flavor, huh? No, and you only had one one lick, and there it is in the mud, and you were going to share it with your friends, etc., etc., etc. And you finally get her as sad as possible, as quickly as possible. And you say, Susie, and she goes, Yeah, I have another lollipop. Do you want it? Okay, thank you. And she takes that lollipop and she goes, and she has processed that loss effectively, and she has moved on. And she now has the tools to do that on her own later on in life. There are so many of my patients who have not gotten sad sufficiently about the lost lollipops. They're angry. They use. They are depressed. They self-injure, et cetera, et cetera. And to answer your question, those are all the ways that it can right. manifest instead of just sad. So you basically, I think you answered it already, but do you, do you get ambivalence about going through this process, either from patients or from colleagues for that matter? That, well, if someone is so not used to it, and then we open that door, you know, is, is there a risk of someone getting so overwhelmed, they get so depressed? I mean, you know, self-harm, suicide is a real, you know, is, yeah. is a real thing. If someone, do you, do you tritate it? Do you build it up? Because I can see maybe perhaps someone getting so overwhelmed with the sadness when they haven't looked it in the face, like you said, looked at the, you know, the demon in the face for so long to the point where it's like, I can't do this. I try to warn my patients at the outset. You know, we have the informed consent things. Therapy is not always fun, da-da-da. And I try to remind them that if we do remove your anger, nature abhors a loss. So when you, are you sure you want to get rid of this depression? Are you sure you want to get rid of this anger? Because if you do, something's going to come and it's going to take its place when you might not be thrilled about it. They're like, what are you talking about? Of course I want to be angry. It's like, okay. And then we go through it and we get them lost and they start crying. And they're like, wow, I don't think this is really what I signed up for. And so we work through it together. And when it's in the comfort of my office or on the Zoom, then 
again, I'm a sitter for them. I'm, I'm there for them to virtually hold their hand and help them through this whole thing. Obviously, if I hold their hand, they won't be able to feel the sadness that they really need to feel. But I'm there for them, that I'm along on this journey with them, and I can help throw a rope down if they get to a pit. But generally, it's not a very long thing to do. And so if we're running out of time, I won't necessarily do it in the session. But if it's something they come in and they're ready to work at the beginning of the session, we can do it and finish it in a relatively short amount of time. It's the most efficient, effective, and exciting way I know how to do therapy. It's beautiful, and it has gotten me very successful, very, very happy results with my patients. So there's always that danger. But if you're really and ready and willing to do it, it's really a... Uh, a relatively short procedure. So now hypothetically, mm. if someone becomes a pro at being able to handle loss, are you saying that someone can live in chronic, really poor conditions and whether it's socioeconomic or not being in safe environments and well, in theory, if I'm able to just handle loss, then I should be able to handle chronic significant loss, you know, that doesn't stop? Yeah, I believe so. As yeah. long as you process a loss and mourn it as it arises, then you should be able to handle that. Again, though, going back to self-esteem, you know, you could have the highest self-esteem and live in abject poverty in the middle of war-torn Europe. And you could be fine. And we have cases like that. Or you could have terrible self-esteem and live in a lap of luxury in a Western society and still have terrible anxiety and depression. So it really depends on several components. But what I believe is that self-esteem needs to be built. And one of the ways to build it is to mourn a loss sufficiently. Because you show yourself compassion and you show yourself compassion. And that is, as we know, part of self-esteem, the self-love part. And really so, paying attention to your emotions is the self-love. So in theory, someone can live in a neighborhood where it's riddled with crime. They do not have a supportive family. In fact, they have the opposite of a family who's either abandons them or worse, abuses them, puts them down, have very little access to resources, have minimal, you know, objective probability of being able to get out of the situation that they're in and create another life. And it's sort of cyclical in nature. Then you're saying that if someone is able to have self-esteem, then they'll be fine. They'll be fine is a little bit of a simplification of the situation. I know. Being a little, I'm, I'm putting you in a corner a little bit. I'm no, like, that's quite <laughs> all right. I think, yes, if you use the ingredients that I put forth, then they'll be fine. Well, are they going to live another day? I can't guarantee that. But are they going to be emotionally stable? I believe so. And if you work on building your self-esteem, if you mourn your losses as they arrive, as they arise, then yeah, I believe that will, no matter the situation, help. There's been a chronic, you know, I mean, terrible lost trauma, and the person has had a traumatic brain injury, uh, then probably we're talking about what you hate to say, normal, typical development. And yes, I believe that no matter the situation, processing losses is an incredible way to internal freedom. Maybe you're not free yourself, given your circumstances. But you can be free emotionally as long as you have that self-esteem and you mourn your losses. So yes, yes, Shmuel, I believe that you'll be just peaches and cream. Now, as someone who actually lives on the other side of the world, do you find that there's different like cultures or region or societies that are more that inherently sort of reinforce and nurture more of this than others? It's a great question. Like I said, the Jewish faith has the built-in mourning of the, the death of people. So they have that built-in. And it's, well, specifically with death, not necessarily with other things. But... No, 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 not at all. But they have an example to, to take from. So you know what? Right. Maybe I'll just apply the Shiva to uh, Lost Lollipop. So it's obviously not equated. 
And I'm not saying that Judaism has that the in monopoly on this, of loss of a loved one, for example, or relative. And there are several cultures that have that. But if we talk about self-esteem, that's a little already hairy. I believe that any culture can benefit from self-esteem, but there are, as we know, many, um, uh, instead of independent cultures, more communal cultures. Certain Asian cultures are more focused on the community than on the individual, which I still believe individuals in a community-minded culture can benefit from self-esteem. But also, we know stereotypically, I could only speak, I can't speak authentically with any field work, for example. I've never conducted the research on this um, outside of some of the patients that I've worked with. I found that anybody who comes in my office and is suffering from anxiety, depression, the losses, mourning the losses is the most important thing for any culture, white, black, green, yellow, religious, whatever. Right. Okay. I have a, just a couple more things here. This is, to me, this is fascinating. I hope, uh, yeah. I, hope people, I hope people listening and watching are enjoying. So would you dress the same way as, you know, there's a concept, I actually have a book sitting on my shelf here. I think we've mentioned it before. Uh, it's a book by Pauline Boss, and it's about ambiguous loss. And for those, you know, watching, listening, ambiguous loss is basically a loss that's really undefined. It's not necessarily have like a beginning and end. So a defined loss is pretty simple. You know, uh, my dog died, right? My dog was here. Yesterday, my dog's not here. My coffee was here. My coffee's not here, right? And, and an ambiguous loss is something that's really undefined. So an extreme example of that would be, you know, let's say 9-11, where maybe they didn't find, I, there's a loved one, but I never really found out what happened to them. They never found their remains. And I mean, they're probably not here, uh, but I don't really know. Or someone, I had a client once who had a family member who, was a veteran and sort of went off the grid, had PTSD, and they know every you know couple months or every couple of years they would hear something about them. They don't know if they were okay, not okay, alive, not not alive, or a parent walks out, or even an alcoholic parent where they're there but they're not there. You don't know what mood they're going to come in. Someone who has an older parent who starts to have dementia, they're physically there, mm -hmm. but mentally they're not. So it's not really a defined. And I thought it was very interesting sort of lens to look at loss that it's you know sometimes it's easier if there's a clear loss this is like well is it really loss i mean they're here they're not here are they coming back it's like it's almost like a tease can you just like tell me the end already <laughs> like, sure it's like I, so I think would you would you approach it in the same way yes i would because an ambiguous loss an actual loss there's still losses. The fact that this loved one has dementia, it's terrible. And several of my patients have dementia. And I work with their kids. It's, it's terrible. But right now, the person who has dementia is not the same person that you love. Whether she's angry or he's sarcastic or dangerous, it's not the same person. And that person that you expected to visit in the nursing home or whatever it's not the same person you expected to see. And so you have a loss of expectations, whether you expected something to happen and it didn't, or you didn't expect it to happen and it did. What, who cares if they're rational or reasonable expectations? This person is no longer whom you thought he or she would be. And so for sure, that ambiguous loss, I would approach the same exact way. Uh, even if they might come back, meaning let's say someone walked out on someone, even if there's a, well, they could come back. He's saying, but right now they're not here. Yeah, of course they to... come back. You know, of course they could. And right now they're not here. And it's not just a loss of the person. For example, if you chop down a tree, you're not sad about the trunk disappearing. You're sad about all the associated losses, all, all the things that hang on. So all the fruits and the flowers and the birds and the leaves and whatever, the nests up there, all those things hang on the loss of the trunk. So it's never about, never only about that one loss. It's about everything else that is hanging on. And so, you know, the person has dementia. 
oh gosh, he's never going to be able to walk down the aisle and dance at my wedding. She's never going to be able to send me a poem anymore in the first day of spring like she used to. So even if the person's right there in front of you, that person is never going to be able to do what you really expected her to be able to do. So while it's an ambiguous loss, it's an actual loss as well. Well said. Thank well you. said. This is kind of my great. jam. Yeah, yes. We know <laughs> I know this about Josh. Okay, so, <laughs> so before we just wrap it up and, and I thank you again, what kind of message would you give to people who are listening and like, oh, you know, he's onto something here to try to, you know, encourage people to to consider going down that road? What might you tell them? I would really consider anytime you're looking you notice yourself get angry at something, grumpy, overwhelmed. Stop for just a moment. Pay attention. You, you deserve it. Pay attention to see what didn't go as you expected. What did you think was going to happen that didn't? You know, when you're kids and you're messing around in the restaurant, your mom starts yelling at you like, rah, 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 rah. you kind of laugh. You're like, whatever. But if your mom says, you know, Shmuel, I'm really disappointed in you and your siblings. I expect you to act like little ladies and gentlemen. It. When your mom pulls out the disappointed, it's a kick to the gut. You're like, ooh, that being sad about loss actually is effective more so than anger. So really invite all the listeners and viewers to look at what didn't go as you had planned, whether it's rational or irrational, doesn't matter. We all know people die. We all know people lose their jobs. We all know relationships don't last forever. But Really look at what didn't go as we had thought it would, but we didn't go as expected and sit with it for a few and say, you know what, this sucks. And then see what all hangs on it and then be sad sufficiently for each of those with purpose and with intentionality. Because if we just let it happen, it's not effective. And then if you're having trouble, contact me at drgontra at gmail.com. Well, that's what I was gonna say next. Shameless How plug. can people contact you? So basically, we should all we should all have bumper stickers like "Be sad with intention." There you go. I, I'd like to have that. Be sad. Oh, that's <laughs> okay. So anyone wants to learn more about loss in general, any other resources that they can look at besides for contacting you? Is there any other? Google Ross. I really am a big fan of Google Ross, okay. but honestly, I haven't really found a lot of this elsewhere in the literature and the, the research i just know that it will work at it go to it. okay so if there's any researchers out there yeah you know, this is definitely something to you know to explore further josh thank you so much i appreciate well, it it was my absolute pleasure thank you so much all right have a good day everybody